0: God, we just thank you that we can uh, sing that we want Christ to come through us. I pray that uh, as we look at your word today, that it wouldn't be anything that I'm saying, but that it would be Christ that comes through and that you would gain all glory for what is uh, spoken this morning. So we thank you for this time. We just thank you for the uh, freedom we have to gather, to worship, to sing out our praises, and, Lord, to uh, just uh, be encouraged from your word. So we just pray. Uh, that you would just bless this time that we have together now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. If I were to say the name Robert Fulgham, some of you might recognize that name. He's probably best known for a uh, a book he wrote years ago, uh, and I'm sure some of you read it, but said, All I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. See, some of you have read it. And so, <laughs> a pretty good book, actually. But sometimes, when he was out uh, traveling and he were attending a lecture he would at the end of the lecture the uh, the lecturer would typically end with the common question of does anybody have any questions and he was a little bit of a jokester and he'd raise his hand and say yes what is the meaning of life of course it would draw some some uh, chuckles from the audience and people would then start to pick up their pick up their things and and head out uh, from the lecture well one time he was speaking at or he was not speaking he was at a, attending a conference on greek culture and it was being taught by a, um, a Greek philosopher named Alexander Papadaros. And Papadaros, as usual, got to the end of the lecture and put out that typical question Are there any questions? And there was silence for a moment. And so Fulgrim raised his hand and said, Dr. Papadaros, what is the meaning of life? As usual, he got a few chuckles. And people started to grab their stuff to get up and leave. But then Papadaros raised his hand instilled the audience and said, wait a second, and everybody got got real silent, and he looked intensely at Fulcombe and said, I'm going to answer your question, and so saying that, he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out his wallet, and out of his wallet, he pulled out a little round mirror. It was the size of a quarter, and he went on to tell the story of how, as a child, he had found uh, this fragment of a mirror on the side of a road. It was from a German motorcycle that had crashed. And he tried to put all the pieces together, couldn't do it. So discarding all the other pieces, he kept this one little piece of a mirror. And he, over time, he would, he would kind of like rub it on a rock and stuff, and he was able to make it to be round. And it became a toy for him. And he was fascinated by the fact that he could take this little tiny mirror and reflect light into the darkest of places, And he just was fascinated by that. But then he said, As I grew older, I realized this light and reflecting light is not just a child's game. It's a metaphor for what I might do with my life. He came to understand, he said, I am not the light, nor am I the source of the light, but I can reflect the light. The light which we know, faith, truth, understanding, and knowledge, is always there. But it will not shine in the darkest places unless I reflect it. He said, then, that I have come to learn is the meaning of life. And with that, then he actually took the mirror and shined it right at Fulgham. He reflected the light right onto Fulgham and on, on the rest of the crowd. Now you might be thinking, great story, why am I telling you this? Well, I think it's a great metaphor for what we're going to see in Second Timothy because I think, I think Paul, as he writes this second letter to Timothy, is trying to convey that to Timothy. He's trying to show him that he can shine or reflect the light of Jesus Christ into a dark world. And so we're going to take a look today. We're going to start our look uh, at 2 Timothy. We just finished 1 Timothy last week. And we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 1 this morning. As we turn, if you want to, you can, you can go ahead and turn to that, 2 Timothy 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. But before we get into that, I think it's important to gain some context. Why is Paul writing this? We just read 1 Timothy. Why is there a 2 Timothy? Why, what's the background to this? Well, you might recall that when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, uh, he was under house arrest. But he was given some freedoms. He had the ability to kind of have people over to his house. He was able to do some teaching, some preaching from his home. And so he he had that uh, freedom, and that's what we saw in 1 Timothy. Well, it's now been about, depending on which which, uh, historian you're looking at, it's been about four to six years since the writing of 1 Timothy that Paul pens the second letter. At some point, Paul had been released from that initial imprisonment, and he had resumed some of his travels. He had uh, taken uh, Timothy and he'd taken Titus with him. You might remember a couple weeks ago, Dan Kachikas pointed out, the books of Timothy and Titus actually complement each other very well. Well, Paul, in those travels, had left uh, Titus in Crete to help the church there, and Timothy he'd left in Ephesus. And that's, you know, we saw that in First Timothy, that he was helping the church there. Well, during this whole period, you're talking about the AD 64 to 68 time frame, Nero was in charge in Rome. And you might recall that we, I think John Tillery walked us through that, how he had burned Rome and then turned around and blamed the Christians. And there was uh, horrific suffering going on at the, at the Christian uh, toward Christians. And at some point during all this, Paul was rearrested. Uh, he's probably rearrested near the city of Troas, which is north of Ephesus. And he was imprisoned under this reign of Nero. And history, and maybe it's a legend, says that Paul may have been imprisoned at the Mamertine uh, dungeon in the city of Rome. It was a a place that was formerly known as the, if I'm pronouncing it right, the Tullianum. But in fact, it was never really a prison. It was an ancient cistern, and they just converted it to be kind of a, a small prison. So it was really just this old cistern, and they had two prison cells that they created out of it stacked on top of each other. It was located right near the law courts, and it was a typical temporary holding place. It was temporary because typically people were about to be executed there, and so that's where they were, and sometimes the executions took place there. Well, it's under this arrest, while Paul is in this dark, dank, probably wet prison that probably has very little light in it, that he writes the second letter. If you've ever been to San Francisco... If you go, or if you've been there, take the tour of Alcatraz. It really is worth it. And if you go, get the headphones. I think they give them out, and I used to have to buy them, but I think they just give them to you. But listen, when you listen, you start hearing the stories of some of the former prisoners that were there, and they'll tell you about how bad it was. And one of the things that, that struck me, as, I, as I've, taken, I've been through it a couple times, is that uh, one of the prisoners talks about how the fact that, at, especially at night, they'd be in this cold prison, and they'd be in their own little tiny cell, and the fog would roll in. And so now you've got this cold, dark, very little light, wet fog coming in, and it was miserable, and to make it worse, they could actually hear all the life going on in San Francisco. You can actually hear, if it's quiet, you can actually hear you know, the, the traffic or the noise of the, the life of the city going on, and yet there you were in this prison you know, on your own without any ability to actually partake in any of that. I think that's kind of a situation that Paul is facing here in this prison when he writes this letter. He goes on in the letter. We'll see that he's going to tell us that everyone has deserted him except Onesiphorus and that only Luke is actually with him. Apparently, at this point, the church in Ephesus is still in some disarray, dealing with bad behaviors and bad theology. And we're going to see when we get to chapter 4, Paul knows these are his last days. He knows his life is coming to an end. So as he writes this second letter to Timothy, he actually knows these are going to be his last words. These are the last words of Paul. And in fact, shortly after writing this, he was taken outside the city of Rome and beheaded. Uh, So that's the backdrop of 2 Timothy. And like I said, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. And I've got to say, this is actually maybe my favorite passage in all of Scripture. It was actually this chapter, these verses here, that I was uh, actually memorizing when uh, I first started dating Jennifer. So it uh, has some special meaning for me. But guys, I'm not saying that you memorize this passage, you get a wife. That's not what I'm saying here. So, um, but uh, that's what it was. But enough about me. Uh, let's look at what God has to say in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And let's start with verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2 read this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy my beloved child grace mercy and peace from God the father and from Christ Jesus our lord you'll notice at the beginning of that in verse 1 paul goes on and starts off by stating his authority in actually writing this letter he tells us that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of god in other words this wasn't given to him or bestowed on him by men but by god now, Timothy would have already understood this. He'd, he'd spent time with Paul, and he would have really understood Paul's apostleship. But I think Paul's pointing it out as a um, kind of a reminder to him about the, maybe the seriousness of which he's writing this letter. He really wants Timothy to get it. And so he writes with authority in this letter. But it's not like an overbearing authority. Paul was more of a, of a spiritual father to Timothy. So when he writes it, He's writing as a father would write to a child, maybe with authority, but it's always with the best interests of the the child in mind and stuff. So Paul writes that, and he writes that he's an apostle of uh, Jesus Christ. Well, you might ask, what is an apostle? Well, quite simply, an apostle just means someone who is sent or a messenger. Uh, You might think of someone that we might probably use the word ambassador today. It's someone who's sent on behalf of the, the, in this case, like a government uh, if the U.S. government were to send an ambassador, they would be sent to represent the interest of the United States. And so the person who's going carries the weight of that government. Well, in this case, Paul is representing the will of God. He's representing the authority that he's been given by God. And so he starts off with that. But then he goes on and he gives, in the second part of verse 1, the, uh, the actual title for our sermon today, which is, according to the promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus. Well, once again, you've got to ask, what is the promise of life in Christ Jesus? Simply, it's the gospel. It's the promise that all who believe in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life. The most famous verse, I think, in all Scripture is probably John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life, everlasting life. Yes, and we know that it's the gospel of life according to Christ Jesus. In John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here's the part I think is amazing about all of this. God uses us with all of our faults, all of our weaknesses to help spread the gospel. That's an amazing thing. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, but we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. That would be referring to us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's an amazing thing that we can be part of the gospel. Well, one of the men that I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, hearing about was a man named Ray Stedman. And I I heard his name frequently, and he was a, a longtime pastor at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California. And he was one of those people that when he spoke, People really listened. Matter of fact, a lot of the guys that I grew up listening to, speaking and preaching and teaching, all mentioned that he was the one that had mentored them. Uh, so like I said, when, when he spoke, people really listened to the words. He had some really good insights. He said this about the gospel. Ray, Ray Stebbins said this, The gospel brings people into the fullness of their manhood or womanhood. It sets them free to be what God intended them to be. And I think we all would desire that same thing. We all want to have that meaningful life to be all that God intended us to be. Living the life, having the promise of life in Christ Jesus in us, that is the most meaningful life we can live. That's what Paul's trying to get across to Timothy on this. And I think it's the lesson for us as well. But also please note, life in Christ Jesus is not something we have to wait for heaven. We we live that life today. Take a look at the world around us. You can easily see things falling apart. But if you have the promise of life in Christ Jesus in you, you can live every day knowing that you can live victorious in God's power. You have the power of God in you. It's an amazing thing. But let me also say, if you don't know the promise of life in Christ Jesus, that salvation that we're talking about, if you don't know that, you can know that today. We don't normally do altar calls or anything like that. But if you don't know about that, come talk to me afterwards. John Tillery's up here, the elders. Look at the people in the pews next to you. Any one of us would be happy to tell you about how you can know that you have the promise of life in Christ Jesus in you today. Can you see why Paul wanted to start by reminding Timothy of this? It's great. He goes on in verse 2, and he starts off verse 2 by calling Timothy, My beloved child. Or some of your versions may say, my dear son or my beloved son. With his life coming to an end, Paul once again reaffirms uh, Timothy. In essence, he's kind of turning over his ministry to Timothy. He knows his life's coming to an end, and he wants Timothy kind of to take the mantle and go forward. And Paul looked at him as a beloved son. Like I said, he was kind of a spiritual father to Timothy. As a beloved son, Paul's words to Timothy would carry a lot of weight. And it would carry a lot of weight to actually obey them and to do what he's saying in here. And you'll see that throughout the whole book of 2 Timothy, that there's a charge that Paul's going to continue to give to Timothy, and it's lessons for us as well. Well, after having talked about the promise of life in Christ Jesus to his beloved son, Paul goes on in verse 2, and he goes on and mentions three key elements, I think, of that promise of life in Christ Jesus. He mentions grace, mercy, and peace. First, he mentions grace, which quite simply is God giving us what we don't deserve. That includes the forgiveness of our sins, that salvation that we have. We could all walk around every single day, buried and loaded down with a with a weight of of guilt over the sins, over the things that we have done in our life. But God's grace frees us from the load of that guilt. We have the promise of what in Christ Jesus? of life in Christ Jesus. And that life is with us every day. Our salvation, it's secure from the moment we believe, and it runs through our life and eternity. It's an amazing thing. And I think what's even greater, if we do sin, 1 John 1-9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's this amazing grace of Jesus in our lives that allows us to move forward. Paul's encouraging Timothy, but it's what allows us to move forward and live a life for Christ Jesus and to do the will of God that God has set in our lives. Let me also add, though, don't ever buy into the lie that you have done something that God isn't willing to forgive. (laughs) That's a lie. If we come to God in repentance, in true repentance, as the song we like to sing sometimes says, His grace is greater than all our sins. Don't ever believe that God's not waiting to forgive you. Well, after grace, Paul goes on and he mentions mercy. And mercy is simply not getting what we do deserve. In Paul's letters, you'll notice in all his letters, all the the epistles, he starts off talking about grace and peace. But in these two letters to Timothy, he adds the word mercy in there. Guy King uh, wrote this. He said, grace is needed for every service, mercy for every failure, and peace for every circumstance. Paul knew that Timothy was going to need to remember mercy. He was going to have to show mercy. He was going to have to practice mercy as he grew in his faith, and he grew in the ministry and helping that church in Ephesus. Now, one of the hymns that uh, has special meaning for me and, and for Jennifer was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That's why I asked uh, Pavan to actually play that one for us. We just sang it. Uh, it's from Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. And it mentions some things about God's mercies. Let me read Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 for you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In this fallen and sinful world, we should expect nothing but maybe chaos or judgment, or we would expect no mercy in this world. A matter of fact, <laughs> I can't help but laugh when I see the Little League World Series going on right now because I remember when my kids were playing that I'd see kids walking around, you know, all the ball fields and stuff, and a lot of them would have these shirts on that would say, no mercy, like it was a really good thing to show no mercy to anyone. Um, it was a baseball thing, but, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't making a spiritual statement there. But you would see it. There's No mercy. But let me read for you and remind you what some of God's mercies are, because I think that's what we need to think about. That's what we need to remember in our life. I'm going to read three verses from Psalm 110, verses, uh, sorry, Psalm 103, verses 8, 10, and 11. And as I read them, they're up on the screen. Take a look and see if you see God's mercies in here. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Again, Paul's using this to remind and encourage Timothy for the task he's being given. You and I should take this as an encouragement as well in our lives, that whatever God has called you to do, Whatever trials you might face in your own life or in your own walk with the Lord, God's mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. (laughs) Great is thy faithfulness. Well, Paul goes on then after grace and mercy, and he mentions peace. Let me quote Ray Stedman one more time here. He says, peace is the inner sense of well-being that when you realize that no matter how dark it may look, there is a way through the trial that Jesus himself is with you And we'll go through it with you, that he is totally in control of the event. So when Paul writes here about grace, mercy, and peace, it should be a great encouragement to every Christian. We have God's grace covering our sins, giving us what we don't deserve in our salvation. We have God's mercy in not giving us what our sins really do deserve. And we have God's peace in our life. As it tells us in Romans 8, 28, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But let me point out when it says good in there, the things working out for good, that doesn't mean earthly goods. It means conformity to Christ. Well, if grace, mercy, and peace weren't enough, Paul goes on in verse 3, and he further encourages Timothy. He says, "...I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience." As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. When Paul, in verse 3, when he says, I thank God, and he goes on later and says, as I remember you, I think maybe another way you could read that would be, when I think about you, Timothy, I have joy in God. Or maybe another way, I am thankful, Timothy, for what God has done for me through you. Either way you read that, Paul's focus is on what God has done, but he's also encouraging Timothy for the ways that God has used him, and I think it's an encouragement for the ways God is going to use Timothy. How encouraging it would be to hear that. I mean, if you're Timothy, how encouraging would it be to have Paul write that to you? I'm sure it was motivating to Timothy, and I hope it's motivating for you as well. Because that brings us to the application of this verse. Are we doing something like this for others? When we see somebody particularly younger in their faith, or maybe just beginning to serve in a ministry, Do we offer them the encouragement they need? Do any of us need to start doing that today or begin doing that? It can make a difference. Spend some time with someone you want to encourage. Tell them the things you're seeing, how God's working in their life, or the ways that they can serve. Let them know that. It's an incredible legacy to leave behind if you do that. I can think of several men in my life who did simple things. One man just played tennis with me, and then after we'd play... He'd encourage me in ways I could serve in the church, and we'd pray together. Uh, I can think of others that had me over for, for meals and just encouraged me to continue to serve or to do uh, whatever service it may be. It may have been working at a camp. It may have been on a mission trip. Uh, it could have been working with kids. You can use everyday things. It doesn't have to be something you know, spectacular. Just do everyday things, but encourage someone in their faith. And I think that's what we're seeing Paul do here. We're seeing Paul do it, and I think one of the things that's really neat in verse 3 is that this verse goes on, that he backed up his affirmation of Timothy. He 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 mentions these things, but then it's, if you notice at the end, it says he was constantly lifting him up in prayer. What an incredible example for that. I know we have a, a you know, kind of a prayer chain that gets sent out, and, and we lift each other up in prayer in the church. And it's an incredible thing. I know sometimes you hear people on the newscasts and you'll hear people say, you know, I don't need your prayers. We need each other's prayers. James 5:16 tells us the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I think also notice that Paul is telling Timothy that he's being held up in prayer in this letter. I think it's a great example for us. Tell someone that you're praying for them. Tell them that you're lifting them up in the Lord in prayer. What a great example. How motivating would that be to somebody to know that somebody's behind them praying for them, and we need to pray for one another? Well, that's just the first three verses. In the next four verses, in verses 4 through 7, Paul's going to go on and further encourage Timothy, and he uses some things that he remembers about Timothy's life or that he sees in Timothy that are an encouragement for Timothy and his ministry. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, Paul says, "...as I remember your tears..." I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. We're not exactly told when those tears were shed. We could probably make a safe assumption that maybe it was that last time uh, before Paul was rearrested when they had to leave each other the last time, that maybe that's when those tears were shed. But whenever it was, Paul remembers those tears. And it's part of the motivation. I'm sure it was part of the prayers because he longed to see Timothy and he found joy in that. Maybe God's putting someone on your heart today maybe some of you have shed shed some tears with are you willing to go remember them in prayer are you willing to help them out encourage them as paul did here for timothy and pray for them well going on to verse 5 paul says this i am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother lois and your mother eunice and now i'm sure dwells in you as well timothy's faith was sincere If you look up sincere in the dictionary, it just means nothing dishonest or hypocritical. Timothy had a faith that was sincere. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of 1 Timothy, and John read this verse for us last week, their charge was this. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Obviously, Timothy was living this life of a sincere faith, and Paul is encouraging him to remain steadfast in that goal. We all need that encouragement. We all need to be encouraged to remain steadfast in our faith and our walk with the Lord. It can be very easy to get discouraged. It would be pretty easy if things don't go the way we think they should go, or maybe the way that things we plan them to go. It'd be easy to just kind of shrug and say, oh, that's it, I give up, and not do that. That is not what Paul's saying here. He is remembering Timothy's sincere faith, and he knows that even in hard times, Timothy is going to remain steadfast, and he's going to continue to walk with the Lord. And for us, if you get discouraged, you know, maybe you face that. Take it to the Lord. Let him lift you up. Let me read you 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now, I love the part in verse 5 where he goes on, that second part, because it mentions Timothy's heritage. It mentions uh, that his Christian heritage comes from his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. Obviously, his grandmother and mother had taken the time to teach young Timothy all about the Lord, uh, and it laid a foundation for what uh, God was going to be able to do in Timothy's life. Now, I'm personally very fortunate. My parents did the same for me. I have godly parents who taught me about the Lord. They taught me to, to love the Lord, and you know, I still fondly remember a day 51 years ago sitting in a little bedroom in the back of a house in Burlingame, California with my dad and committing my life to the Lord and stuff. That's a, it's a precious thing. And I would say if you have that heritage, cherish it. And if you have the ability, thank those who left that in you. But maybe you're out there saying, I don't have that heritage. That, I, there is no Christian heritage in me. Well, then, my charge to you is simply this: be that first person, be that person who sets the foundation for your family going forward. Or, you know, could be your family, could be your friends, but set that foundation. What an incredible legacy that would be to leave. This this whole idea of, of leaving a legacy like that reminds me of a story I read um, years ago. We have and we've got them in the back if you want to grab one. But there are those little uh, daily devotionals called um, Our Daily Bread. And so they have lots of really, really neat stories in them. And one of them deals with this passage and and with this concept. It was called For Future Generations. This was written a long time ago. But let me read that for you. It's a quick little story. When a team of Christians visited Stavropol, Russia in 1994 to hand out Bibles, a local citizen said he recalled seeing an old warehouse where Bibles were stored. Those Bibles were confiscated in the 1930s when Stalin was sending believers to the gulags. Amazingly, the Bibles were still there. Among those who showed up to load them into trucks was a young agnostic student, and all he wanted was just to earn a day's wage. But soon he slipped away from the, from the, from the work to steal a Bible. And a team member went looking for him, and they found him sitting in a corner weeping. Out of the hundreds of Bibles in that warehouse, that young man had picked up one that bore the handwritten signature of his own grandmother. <laughs> Out of, it's amazing. Persecuted for her faith, she'd no doubt prayed for her family. Maybe didn't even know her grandson at that point, but she'd prayed for them, I'm sure. And it says, uh, the, the story goes on um, God used that grandmother's Bible to convict the young man. God has no grandchildren. We must each become a first generation believer through our own personal faith in Jesus Christ. But the devotion to God of a grandparent or a parent is a powerful ally in his spirit to bring our children to Christ. Paul encouraged Timothy by recalling the faith of his grandmother and his mother. And although Timothy's faith was his own, it was deeply linked to theirs. What an admonition it is to all of us who might be a parent or a grandparent. And I would say, or maybe an uncle or an aunt or a friend. Uh, to continue, you can have an incredible impact on someone's life. Well, moving on to verse 6. Uh, it reads this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. As we saw back in First Timothy, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, there were some prophetic words given that Timothy would be used greatly of God. Note also that Paul is not telling Timothy he needs a new gift, a new spiritual gift. Rather, he just needed to fan into flame the gift that was already in him. We're not told what that gift was, but whatever it was, Timothy needed to fan it into flame. And he needed to continue to use that so that that flame would continue to burn bright for God. Each of us has, as a Christian, you have a spiritual gift from God that we each need to fan into flame. Or maybe we need to be the one who fans that gift into flame for someone else, like Paul is trying to do for Timothy. Let me quote Ray Stedwin one final time. Everybody does not have the same spiritual gift, but everyone has the gift of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit himself indwelling us. I love this whole analogy of fanning into flame because it makes me think of one of my favorite things to do, uh, which is grilling. <laughs> and I think I've told you this analogy before, but I'm going to tell you it one more time. You know, One of the simple tools you can use in grilling is a chimney starter. And it's just a tall tube with a bottom section, and you pour your coals into the top, stuff some paper into the bottom, light the newspaper. And then the idea is that the the, the flame comes up and you get all these coals that are evenly lit. So you don't end up with the pyramid in the bottom of the barbecue where the outer ones aren't lit, but the inner ones are. Uh, you get a you get an evenly set burning of coals when you do that. And I think that's the, the analogy that Paul is trying to say. It's like sometimes... Those coals don't light. Sometimes that paper starts to go out a little bit, and you've got to give it a little air. You've got to fan it or blow some air onto it. And when you do that, it sparks up again, and all the coals light up, and you end up with burning hot set of coals. And I think that's what Paul's trying to get into Timothy's life. There's a burning hot set of coals and the spiritual gift that Timothy needs to use. It's an amazing thing, and I think it's a great lesson for us, too. Maybe we need to each make a humble examination or evaluation of our life before the Lord in order to help take steps to fan into flame that gift that is in us. God has given us each a spiritual gift. Will you go to him? Look for it. Look in your life. See what needs to be fanned into flame. Or know that maybe God can use you to fan into flame that gift that is in someone else. You can do like Paul did for Timothy and help someone, encourage them. Um, But just remember, whatever glory that may come our way needs to go to God and we need to give him thanks for it. Well, finally, we come to verse 7. And Paul reminds Timothy, says, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Some of your versions may say of self-discipline or of a sound mind as well. Now, I think we can all relate, as nice as it sounds to never have a spirit of fear, I think we can all relate to having a spirit of fear at times. I mean, doesn't fear just overtake us some, sometimes? So we can all relate to that. But that doesn't come from God. Let me read you the words. I heard this song last week uh, It was a, by a guy, Zach Williams. I think some of you might remember his song, Chainbreaker uh, from about five, six years ago. Well, another song on that same album was called Fear is a Liar. Let me read you the first verse and the, and the chorus to that. When he told you you're not good enough, when he told you you're not right, when he told you you're not strong enough to put up a good fight, When he told you you're not worthy, when he told you you're not loved, when he told you you're not beautiful, that you'll never be enough, fear, he is a liar. He will take your breath, stop you in your steps. Fear, he is a liar. He will rob your rest, steal your happiness. So cast your fear in the fire, because fear, he is a liar. Fear can stifle our ministry. It can make us ineffective for the Lord. Don't let fear do that. Think of Matthew 25. Remember the story of the uh, the three servants who were given different amounts of money and the master had given them this money and said, take it, go work with it and you know, you know, and he'll be back and they'll see what the results are. Well, remember the third is known as the wicked servant. And he was fearful. He let a fear of the master he he didn't even do i think he did less than nothing he went and buried it in the ground i mean he didn't even bother to go put it in the bank or anything it tells us he just buried it in the ground and fear robbed him of any chance of getting reward matter of fact it, if you read the end of the story it talks about it, it tells him to cast him out into the outer darkness it's a spiritual analogy there or think about the the israelites when they left egypt and they came to the they came to the promised land that first time i think we all remember from sunday school you know Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad, and only two were good. The ten, what happened? They got taken over by fear. They were fearful of the people in Canaan, and they came back and they gave a fearful report to the Israelites. And because of that, an entire generation of Israelites missed out on the promised land. Folks, God did not give us a spirit of fear. It tells us he gave us a spirit of power and love and self-discipline or self-control. He gave us the spirit of power or the courage. I think we heard some of that this morning, or the resolution that if we encounter difficulties, we can look to God. We have God's strength in us, and we need to seek God's will for our lives. He gave us the spirit of love to carry us through our opposition or our fears. 1 John four eighteen says, Perfect love casts out fear. Romans 5, 5, tells us this. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And finally, we have the spirit of self-discipline, power, love, and self-discipline or self-control or sound judgment. I think there are different variations of that uh, depending on your translation. And that's going to help keep us from fear or discouragement. probably from our own imaginations. I don't know about you, but don't you tend to think when something doesn't go right, don't you go to the worst case scenario right away? And doesn't that drive fear in us? But if you have that self-discipline or a sound mind, it allows us to think through those things and realize you have the power of God in you. We can realistically appraise those situations of our life and look to God for guidance. And then we can know the right thing to do and we can steadfastly do it. Remember, the power of the Lord is victorious over the power of Satan and of this world. Well, that's a lot in seven verses, isn't it? <laughs> Paul packed a ton in these first seven verses. Can you see why I wanted to memorize this, the, this chapter? It's just an incredible beginning. I hope you find encouragement in that. I hope you find encouragement to be steadfast in your walk with the Lord, to you know, encourage others, to look for ways you can help fan into flame the gift of God in them. As I've said before, in closing, Having heard God's word, you are not being dismissed. You are being sent. You're being sent, as the sign here says, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, that Barb has kept this up for 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. As the sign says, in the light of Christ's return, we are to live in hope. We are to fight in faith. And we are to persevere in trials. Let's close in prayer. God, we just thank you. We thank you for these encouraging words. We thank you that Uh, You used Paul in such an incredible way to encourage Timothy. And, Lord, that we can read these words, we can hear them, we can apply them in our life. Lord, help us to be a a church that is praying for one another, that we're upholding one another, encouraging one another, and that we're looking for ways that we can uh, serve you and give you glory. Lord, that we can be each um, know our salvation, but also, Lord, that we can set the foundation and the heritage in each of our families that lord that all we do would be glorifying to you and that your kingdom would grow and we would see those that we love come to know you as our lord and savior so we thank you for this we thank you for this time we just pray that you will continue to uh, help us as we study uh, each and every uh, week the word of god that we would be encouraged to live it out so we just pray this in jesus name amen